The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. Welcome everyone. And as we begin tonight, I'd just like to acknowledge that Common Ground, and I only live about eight blocks from Common Ground, so this is, I'm physically very close to the meditation center. And Common Ground is located on the traditional, ancestral, and contemporary homelands of the Dakota and the Ojibwe people. And this land holds great historical, spiritual, and personal significance to its original inhabitants their, their, and their descendants who live here today and to their future generations. And we acknowledge the sovereignty of these nations and our obligation to live up to treaty agreements and our intention to rectify any harm that we have committed and those we continue to commit. So, and some of you may know that, uh, that we're the Mississippi and the Minnesota rivers come together here in Minneapolis is the most sacred place to all the Dakota people. It is the creation site. So it is a, a very spiritual, powerful place. <clears throat> and tonight I'd like to uh, talk about and discuss with you and, and hear your comments on um, uh, what I've been thinking of as the paramis as public virtues. And most of us think of the paramis, and that is the purifying qualities of the heart and mind as matters of personal cultivation, the 10 Buddhist paramis, the, the qualities that we develop to negotiate the path that leads us to the end of suffering. And a few years ago, I began to wonder what our society would look like if we found a way to embed these uh, personal virtues, these spiritual virtues in our civic institutions and policies. And I started looking for examples of uh, where it seemed that a policy or a practice actually embodied one of these Buddhist virtues. So tonight I'd like to share some of my reflections uh, and findings with respect to five of the paramis, generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, and energy. And uh, I hope to have plenty of time for us to discuss this. So the first parami is dana or generosity, freely giving. And in public life, this might be finding ways to help people be less stressed in dealing with institutions and uh, bureaucracies. And sometimes these are simple tweaks to the system and other times uh, may require a reallocation of resources. But here, these are some examples. Um, one which just gladdens my heart all the time is that the Hennepin County Library automatically renews books if there is no one waiting. You know, there was a time when you actually, this dates me, but you, know, you actually had to take the books back to the library and, and sign them out again. But you know, the county renews the books um, automatically and it, uh, if no one's waiting. And it uh, notifies you by email when your books are due. And um, you know, it's just a, a remarkable sort of, of, of thing um, that, and it doesn't, you know, it takes some tweaking, but it didn't take a tremendous amount of resources to do this. It's like, oh, this is something we could do that would make our patrons experience um, better, would be helpful to them. Uh, another example sort of along this theme is that in Hennepin County now, the court 
sends a text reminder to people about their upcoming court appearances. Um, this may sound to really simple, but for a lot of people who are um, kind of entangled with the legal system, uh, whose lives are kind of chaotic, it's often challenging to remember. You know, if you've got a court date three months ahead, when you're supposed to be in court, and then people um, forget about it, they miss their court date. Then there's a warrant sent out, and it's uh, and it just snowballs, it cascades. So now Hennepin County sends out uh, a text, I think three days ahead of time to everyone when they have a court date. I mean, it, it assumes everyone has a phone, but I saw a statistic today that nearly 100% of um, the US population has, uh, has a phone. Um, so that's a, um, a wonderful uh, example. Um, another one that, that I don't know if this is still the case, but it was in 2019. Um, many of you have heard how often people are stopped um, because they have a tail light out, particularly you know persons who are black and brown um, and you're stopped, you get a ticket, and then again, you have a court date uh, often uh, or a fine. But instead of giving people a ticket for um, a taillight that's not working, for a while, in uh, Minneapolis at least, people were given a voucher to get the taillight fixed. And there's a um, sort of a, a garage called Bobby and Steve's and they tow cars, they do something there. It's a, it's a big um, automotive services um, gas station stuff. And they were one of the, um, <clears throat> they were one of the funders for this. And I think a foundation put some money in. So it did take some resources, but this is so much smarter because sometimes people don't get a taillight fixed because they just don't have the money to get the taillight fixed. So again, this is a wonderful instance where we see this parami of generosity um, helping people. It's a policy. Instead of penalizing people for not being able to get something fixed, why don't we help them get it fixed? Um, here are some things that I think could be done. Um, uh, I think um, I would love to see more fault tolerance in forms and applications. Um, fault tolerance is the idea that when you've got some sort of system, you anticipate that people are going to make mistakes. And so you make it hard for them to make a mistake. So for example, I can't tell you how many times I've been saved by my computer saying, do you really want to delete this, right? We get that little pop-up that, that asks us if we want to delete this. Um, you know, do you want to save your changes? Um, so that's kind of, that's an example of fault tolerance. Uh, the most dramatic place where we have fault tolerance is in commercial aircraft, where there are so many things for the pilot to be aware of that there is, it's built into that, that the pilot may be distracted, may be making, uh, uh, you know, uh, not making really good decisions. And, and so commercial air, airlines, one of the ways they have really cut down on pilot-based accidents is to build in this kind of fault tolerance where the system asks you, do you really want to do this? It, um, it sort of responds to you in this way. So one of the places where I think fault tolerance is needed um, is in forms and applications. And for many years, I worked for the Minnesota AIDS Project, and I would often have clients who would get a form and they'd have a 10-day turnaround period. You know, this is often to do with, with housing um, or getting, um, you know, some sort of voucher or getting something renewed. They'd have a 10-day turnaround 
period. And often people who would be very um, housing insecure or something, they'd be moving. So they might not be at the address where the mail goes and you know they might not get the letter for a week or more. Um, but if they miss the deadline or if they made a mistake on the form, they would lose that um, that support. And so, and, and often uh, the forms were not easy to, to understand. Uh, so fault tolerance seems to me to be, um, you know, longer turnaround times, not penalizing for unintended errors. Um, and uh, I, Greg just put in the, the uh, chat that we should have fault tolerance making uh, masks easier to wear. That's that's some uh, entrepreneur will probably probably come up with something like that. So um, another place where um, I would see a role for generosity is in, um, and, and this is something that um, Hennepin County is experimenting with, uh, is um, no bail alternatives. So in Hennepin County, for example. Um, people who have um, committed a felony, but it's not um, a violent felony, they're not a danger, um, but they would ordinarily have to, you know, they've been arrested, they'd have to pay bail to get out. The idea is that the um, accused person is assigned a social worker and works with the social worker to make sure that that person shows up in court, doesn't have to try to raise money for bail, because I think everyone understands that people are often in jail or accused of crimes in jail for nonviolent offenses, but they can't raise bail. So having um, a no bail alternative, or there are um, sometimes organizations that um, set up bail funds so that people who are arrested can apply to the, usually it's, it's a nonprofit, and um, be bailed out. It's interesting that in Texas, there is now an effort to make what are called charity bail organizations illegal. That um, people who are arrested could still go to a commercial bail bondsman and get bail, but the state is about to, there's, there's a, I should say they're about to, it's been proposed that charity um, bail be made um, illegal, which is really the opposite of, of generosity. But those are just some, some ideas about where I've seen generosity in public policy and, um, and where I think it could be improved. And I hope you all are making notes about where you think your ideas, keeping track of that. Um, the second virtue that I wanted to talk about, the second parami, it's sila, which is usually discussed as um, virtue or morality, but it's really the idea of non-harming. It's about the precepts. And when we look at, um, Sila as, as this kind of a virtue, um, we think about cause and, and effect and really reflect on the harm that comes from our unskillful actions. And um, it, it appears to me that many current criminal justice policies emphasize punishment without rehabilitation. So there's a question about cause and, and uh, effect with that. And that persons are who are incarcerated are returned to the community um, often damaged by their experience. And I don't want to say, uh, um, I volunteered in, in corrections for many years teaching meditation. Greg, who's on um, in our group tonight, uh, has also done this. And there are instances where it seemed to me that um, for example, that it wasn't until people were actually incarcerated that they were able to get mental health uh, attention. 
and that's something that that um, I saw over and over again. And some of that help was really, really helpful. But often in um, in the justice system, people are um, harmed by their incarceration and not rehabilitated. So it would seem that um, non-harming policies might include, especially for young offenders, um, restorative justice um, circles uh, where individuals who have committed harm work on this long process to understand the harm that they've done and to work with the persons who have been injured to um, agree upon um, what restitution um, might look like. Um, another interesting place where um, Minnesota does have a policy that I think is in accordance with SELA is non-harming. It now allows infants born to incarcerated mothers to um, stay with them. And uh, Minnesota apparently is um, one of the few states in the nation that actually allows this, that usually when an infant is born, that it is taken from, to an incarcerated person, um, the child is taken away right away and uh, is in the care of um, either family members or um, care of the state. But you know how much better it is for the infant and for the, um, the mother to, uh, to be with each other. And we know that that's um, that's something where we can clearly anticipate that this is a good and the harm that comes from separating children and their and their mothers. Um, there's something called the Good Country Index. Um, has anyone here have a show of hands? Has anyone heard of this before? The Good Country Index. Well, it's a really, there's a TED talk about it, which is kind of the easy way to find out about it, but there's also a very interesting website. And the good country, in terms of the unselfish country, it's, uh, it's not a domestic index. It is an international index that measures what each country on earth uh, contributes to the common good of humanity and the planet. It looks at the global impact in terms of the harm, and it assesses on a whole number of, of scores of um, science and technology, culture, um, peace and security, um, climate, prosperity, uh, equality, health and well-being. And it doesn't look at all at domestic impact. It looks at, um, at the kind of global impact and the measures the uh, the website, you can really do an incredibly deep dive into it. It talks about all of the sort of UN reports and all the ways the data is, is gathered. But it's a really interesting idea to look at countries and how much do they benefit the global population and how much do they, they harm us. And um, right now, and the most recent uh, data is from 2019, and uh, the top two countries were Sweden and Denmark. And in 2019, the U.S. was number 38. It was between Malta and Croatia in terms of the good that it it does. So this is just a a suggestion. If I've got you curious about how do we look at, at the harm or the, the benefit a country does. Looking at the good country index is, um, is an interesting, interesting site. And this was just um, something I had not heard of at all before. And again, if you just Google good country index TED talk, um, you can, and I'm blanking on the name of the person who developed this. It's been going on for quite a while. Um, it's uh, certainly worth uh, worth learning about. Um, the third parami that I want to talk about is nakama, which is renunciation, giving something up voluntarily 
even if it's a sacrifice. And one of the places I thought about this was um, for people who live in Minneapolis. Minneapolis passed a very controversial 2040 uh, housing plan that got national attention because it was the first city to abandon zoning for single family housing. Now in Minneapolis, um, if you have any a property that is zoned for a single family house, you could build a triplex on it. And there are some other um, you know, more adventurous plans about um, denser housing because housing has been such a crisis. Uh, this has been a very hard pill for some people to swallow. And uh, when this was being considered, uh, as I said, I live close to common ground in Seward where there are a number of duplexes and some apartment houses, but they're also parts of my neighborhood that are you know, really lovely single family houses. And there was a lot of um, discussion about ruining the character of the neighborhood. And, um, there, and there are signs all over the city about, you know, don't ruin our neighborhoods. And it, Sunday, in fact, uh, there was an article about trying to uh, do slightly denser housing in St. Louis Park. And the response to it, I mean, people said things like, if you build uh, multiple family housing, you'll just have an increase in crime. You'll see more cars broken into. I mean, clearly racial assumptions about uh, who lives in multifamily housing. But we know that there is a, a need for housing. And, um, you know, I thought, well, what if, <clears throat> you know, a house on my, my block were to have a triplex? And I think, well, it wouldn't be my preference, but it's really important that people have housing. And my preference shouldn't matter about this. My aesthetic preference shouldn't matter. At the end of my street, there's um, an industrialist. It's right along the Greenway. So it's right now a little industrial corridor. But I know in the city plan, that's um, when the owner of that business, Empire Glass, sells his building, that there is going to be probably a three to five story um, apartment house built on that. I think, okay, be a lot more traffic on my block, but, and I like how things are now, but, you know, that's kind of irrelevant because there really is this, this need for more housing. So deal with more traffic. You know, it's, it's just kind of the way it, it needs to be. So that's kind of one example where we can, can see sometimes where our, preferences might, uh, we have to give up our, our preferences for the, the good of, of the many. And housing is such a, if such a tremendous need for housing that it seems to me that that's something when we're asked to give something up like that, that we should really consider. Um, another really interesting example of um, renunciation, and I think this is kind of the big one in our time, is the issue of um, reparations. We, many of us find ourselves unwitting beneficiaries of settler colonialism, of redlining, of systemic racism, and you know, there's a really lively discussion about what do we do to um, to address these benefits that we often didn't ask for, but that we clearly have from, you know, I mean, especially settler colonialism is such a, a clear example. And if you would like to um, read an interesting and controversial um, suggestion in the 2021, May 2021, Atlantic Monthly, there's a very interesting article called Return the National Parks to Native Occupation. And it's a proposal to have 
the national parks return to um, tribes, and they often were, you know, sacred sites to begin with, like Yosemite was an incredibly sacred site. Um, and that it wouldn't be that the, that, uh, the parks would no longer be national parks. They would still be national parks and, you know, open to anyone to visit, but they would be administered by the tribes and tribal people could live in the national parks and they could hunt in the national parks. And it's, it's, uh, and David Troyer, who is a wonderful historian and scholar and writer, wrote that article. And um, it's, I think there are 85 million acres in the um, national parks. And uh, he said it wouldn't be the, you know, wouldn't be what the native people gave up, but it would be uh, certainly a gesture. And he argues why native people have had experience in various kinds of administration of complex things. And he says, you know, we're really set up to do this. We have a lot of experience dealing with complex land issues. So again, that, that's just a, a, an interesting thought about one way reparations might look like. Uh, Georgetown University sold 280 enslaved persons to a plantation in Louisiana in the uh, late 18th century. And they have made an effort since then to identify the descendants and they've been fairly um, successful in identifying quite a few descendants of those um, original people um, who were sold to, uh, to a plantation in Louisiana so that they could expand and support their, their space. And um, they offer uh, priority admission and free tuition and board to, uh, to any descendant who wants to go to Georgetown. Um, and that's what it, it's a gesture, at least. Um, Netflix, interestingly, Netflix has just made a hundred million dollar commitment to bank a portion of its holdings with lenders who focus on uh, black communities. Now, this is a, a tremendous idea of, you know, of, of all of their wealth that they put $100 million in banks and in financial institutions that primarily serve um, black communities. Um, and, you know, I mean, and there have been reparations before. In uh, the 1990s, there were reparations made to the descendants of people who were in the internment camps in Japan, and there was an apology. And um, Germany paid reparations to Israel after the Second World War. I mean, there is, a, people say, well, who's ever paid reparations? Um, there have been many ways of um, attempting to, to do this, and um, it's just something, if we really take the this idea about renunciation the heart, um, and we try to imagine public policy. I think this is um, a really fertile place to um, to look. So, and then the virtue of panya or wisdom. I think one of the most succinct uh, expressions of wisdom is Ruth King, the wonderful author of Mindful of Race, Ruth King says, everything is impermanent, imperfect, impersonal. That's wisdom. So part of wisdom is that, you know, there are no perfect solutions. There are only skillful means. And I think this is something for us to consider. Wisdom sees the folly in short-term solutions, short-term gains. Wisdom takes a long and broad perspective. You know, I think everyone has probably heard that, that in many indigenous communities, people talk about planning for the seventh generation. 
taking that into account in anything you do. Um, you know, in, um, in art conservatorship, the idea with that is you never do anything that you can't undo. That's kind of the wisdom of, of um, art conservation. So when we look at, at this idea that everything is impermanent, uh, imperfect, impersonal, we live in a changing world. It's very dynamic. There's lots that we can't control. But we can certainly um, see uh, the consequences of some of our actions and we can uh, we can find some skillful means to um, to address them. And probably you know the most clear example is in the environment and climate change. What we're all um, have been so acutely aware of this summer, because no matter where you live in the United States um, right now, um, you are probably aware of more extreme weather, uh, ranging from drought to flood to fire. Um, so, you know, looking at things like <coughs> renewable, <coughs> renewable energy, uh, uh, mitigating, and there are lots of, of uh, very creative ideas about how we can mitigate some, some damage. There was a, a recent piece in a New Yorker uh, magazine about how in New York City, you know, when, when Hurricane Sandy came, it just like swept over uh, Staten Island and 24 people died. And there was so much damage. And, um, you know, they said that, that looking at um, what happens with, with storm surge, that often the kind of natural barriers that would mitigate against the terrible destruction of storm surges have been done. What people have done is they built seawalls, things that are hard, hard and high. And there's this just amazing um, plan to um, remake the oyster beds around New York Harbor. And it's very ingenious about, uh, you've probably also heard about trying to create reefs um, where reefs have been washed away to, to, set, to uh, recreate, they're called artificial reefs, but eventually they become inhabited by lots of, of living creatures. So to do things that are um, mitigating activities to deal with climate change, and they're not quick fixes. A lot of to sort of restore some of these natural systems will take decades, if not, in some cases, maybe a generation. But they're really, it, it is this, this sense of, you know, how do we, uh, how do we repair? How do we restore? How do we um, how can we act to ameliorate? some of the harms that have been committed. And, and wisdom really takes this longer um, point of view. Another, uh, I think, uh, for another area, for example, universal preschool, that, you know, wisdom teaches us, all the data teaches us that uh, early education is, you know, one of the best investments uh, that can be made. And it's interesting that it was a study that came out of the Minneapolis Fed, where they, or the Minnesota Fed, the, the, um, the Fed that's the bank that, that's here in Minneapolis, that they did a study and they thought, you know, one of the, the most efficient ways of spending money in terms of, of benefit is preschool education, universal preschool education, and probably universal health care, you know access to competent and culturally appropriate health care for everyone. These are our areas where um, we can take this kind of long and uh, broad view and understand that there's no single simple fix. There are lots of ways that we can use skillful means and there may have to be 
lots of different ways. It's not like a single solution. And then the last one I want to talk about is um, the um, parami. It's viria in or viria in in Pali, and it's usually translated as as energy, which always just seems to me to be kind of a a funny um, thing to talk about virtue as as energy, but actually it means kind of. Um, Exertion in um, mental development, facing what is difficult, heroic effort. And I don't know if any of you remember that a couple of years ago, Ayo Tudni once said at Common Ground, you know, where is the Buddhist virtue of courage? Why don't we have courage as a virtue? And actually, Joseph Goldstein says that courage is a perfectly appropriate um, translation of this polyterm viria. Um, because it really is facing what is what is difficult, uh, a kind of heroic effort. Um, so it it seemed to me that I thought, okay, is this one though where we actually see this in um, in policies? Are there courageous policies facing what is what is difficult? I mean, it's really easy, I think, to see courage. In people like, you know, Brian Stevenson, who worked so hard to end life imprisonment for juvenile offenders, finally got the Supreme Court to declare that for juveniles who were sentenced as juveniles to life imprisonment, the Supreme Court finally decided that that was cruel and unusual punishment. So you can have a juvenile who is sentenced as an adult to life imprisonment. And that still sticks. But if a person is a juvenile, they cannot can no longer be sentenced to life imprisonment. I mean, and this was working for years and years and years. Um, Brian Stevenson, who wrote the the amazing book um, Just Mercy, and working, for example, against capital punishment. You know, that's a that is a a campaign that has been going on for decades and decades and decades. Um, we might think about um, voter registration as another example where that would require, um, you know, this, this sort of sustained effort facing what, what is difficult, doing that, that hard work. And we have, you know, wonderful examples of people who have, have really done that, um, both people who have um, lived um, Long lives, I think of, of the Buddhist philosopher Joanna Macy, who has worked, uh, talks about the great turning, who has worked so long and uh, on um, environmental issues. And then a very young person like Greta Thunberg, who again is really uh, inspiring. So, my question to you is you know, like, what if we really took it upon ourselves as part of our practice to consistently make an effort to see that these paramis were inserted in public life. You know, what if that was one of the, the lenses that we used to decide what's worth our efforts and our support in terms of um, candidates or policies? Um, you know, what if, if, what if we were to take courage to heart and engage in activities, you know, that works for a more generous, virtuous, unselfish, and equitable future. So I would love to hear your comments and your thoughts. Um, this is something I've been trying to write about for a while. So if you've got any suggestions of other examples, or if you um, have any, <clears throat> any criticisms, uh, I'm always welcome for that, for that too. So please just um, unmute yourself and jump in. There's actually a um, across the room, but there's there's a book called Buddhist Economics. That's a, an interesting um, interesting book that that does talk about um, you know a lot about interdependence and if we approach um, you know from this sort of abundance standpoint from our interdependence um, and look at, at economic theory in that way. 
thanks. Other other responses. Oh, thank you for your examples. That's yeah, not only the the individual but the family. Yeah, and that's a really important thing when we think about um, relieving suffering. To again look at that sort of big picture of who's who's harmed, who's involved. Um, you know, it's sort of like the the mother and the and the infant keeping the mother and the infant together. That you know the the harm that's done both to the mother and the infant and and the family probably in uh, in taking that infant away from from the mother. So, other responses. Part of my thinking about this was actually inspired by listening to a talk a couple of years ago by um, the um, meditation teacher and um, psychotherapist um, Akinchino. Uh, he, he's not a, a monk anymore, but he still uses his monk name, Akinchino, and he is a, a Swiss psychotherapist. And he actually talked about equanimity as impartiality. And he said that is such an important virtue in our, um, like in, in the legal system, that you want um, a judge to be impartial. You want the law to be applied impartially. And so equanimity, uh, he thought actually, uh, he was actually talking about the, the Brahma Viharas and how they might um, be understood in a more social context. And I thought that was really, really interesting to take that aspect of them because sometimes we talk about equanimity, you know, as being steadfast, not falling to extremes, um, and that idea of not not going to extremes is kind of that idea about being um, impartial, not not swayed by um, by preference or by um, you know something that wouldn't be appropriate. And I also think, for example, um, we would like um, our referees and umpires in sports to be impartial, to have this kind of equanimity. It probably means more in sports where you have you know people screaming at the at the umpire and the fans and um, the players sometimes yelling at the umpire but you or the referee and and you want those people whose job it is to apply um, certain um, you know to, to apply the law or apply the um, the rule and um, and I uh, know someone who is a judge and who has talked about um, the importance and, and sort of the mental discipline of, um, you know, being really open to what, um, what the evidence and the law indicates. And this person said, you know, sometimes I go into a case thinking, oh, it sounds like I'm, you know, having an idea about which one would prevail and said that it's often the case when I really look at the at the evidence and look at the law, the circumstances and and the law um, that and this is more these are not criminal cases, but this would be you know contractual law or tort law things like that. How um, how that sort of discipline about equanimity and impartiality. So that would be my response to that, Carrie. And, and it's, not, it's not something I thought of, but I heard someone say, I thought, oh, that, that's really pretty, pretty interesting. And sometimes, you know, that we, we have the experience when we see someone who embodies uh, a kind of a virtue, embodies that sort of steadfastness, embodies that kind of equanimity, that that often does have some influence on other people. I mean, I, I think that, you know, like um, 
to see sometimes he's always used this example, but you know, the Dalai Lama and, and how he talks about, um, you know, not hating the, the Chinese and wishing them well and, um, you know, not wanting people to suffer about his, his equanimity about, um, his own life and, and his circumstances and his humility, you know, the way he greets whenever he's at a hotel or a convention center. He always asks if he can go and see the people who are working there, you know, the caterers and the janitors and, and all of that. So, you know, when we, we ha have people like that, that we can um, see how they live the paramis. It's often just such an encouragement. And it's like I say, oh, human beings are capable of doing that. You know, it, it really is. I could aspire to having you know, some of that equanimity or that kindness. So it's um, it's not to feel that, you know, I'm compared to the Dalai Lama. You know, I'm such a toad. But um, it's uh, it's all. Oh, Human beings are capable of that uh, and, and to just really rejoice in that in a way. Other, other comments that people might have. I think this is where historical perspective is, is really um, useful. You know, like, like what is, um, you know, how were things 50 years ago? How were things hundred years ago um, and to really take the big picture of how change has has occurred and when we um, you know look at um, for example um, policing that um, you know before there were Miranda laws um, that um, you know, if we look at that, that often, um, you know, the police and law enforcement stood by as people were lynched, um, you know, that uh, that women who uh, were, um, you know, domestically abused, that they were were not taken seriously. They were told to, you know, go home and be nice to their husbands. You know, I mean, in almost any social issue. If we look back uh, and take this perspective of, well, what was it like 50 years ago, um, 100 years ago, 150 years ago? You know, I mean, we no longer execute children. Um, and um, that was done, you know, well into, I don't know if it was done in America, but well, it was certainly done with um, children who were enslaved. They were executed. Um, but, you know, we can think about the changes that have happened. And although they may be seem really slow and when we look at something now, we can be really frustrated. We can say this is, you know, compared to 50 years ago, we've made some progress. And I think that's, um, you know, what we what we have to do to. Um, to stay steady on on the path. And also to really look for examples where people are doing good, where they are making things better for other people, where they're they're helping. So I think that you know having this sort of positive um, inclination to see, you know, well, where where in my city do I see, um, you know, generosity? Like the library now has at least I, I use the East Lake Library. They have a social worker there twice a week. I think what a great use of a social worker, someone who's just there to help people figure out what resources are available, maybe to help them figure out forms. I mean, it, that's just a, a terrific idea of having a social worker come to the library and just be available. Sort of like, you no, know, it's used a homework helper at the library, but now there's the social worker for their parents. And what a great idea that is. Joanna Macy talks a lot about um, discontinuous change. You now she's worked for the environment. She said, and she said, you know, it goes either way, but you know, water 
before it reaches 32 degrees is just water. But once it gets to 32 degrees, you have this really quick discontinuous change where it becomes ice. Or, you know, in the physical world, I think also about, you know, I think it was in 2013, I was phone banking, trying to prevent, uh, to have people vote not to outlaw gay marriage in the Minnesota Constitution. And I thought that was kind of an uphill battle. I was afraid that we would not prevail. But we did. And uh, gay marriage was not made illegal. But within two years, gay marriage was in the whole United States. I mean, you know, there was there was sort of that very quick discontinuous change. And so you know, that's something that we can also take heart of, although remembering that it goes both ways. You know, there are tipping points either way, but we can take um, can take heart. So let's just share the merit. And um, thank you all so much for being here this evening. But if there's any goodness to our practice, any benefit or blessing or merit, we would, if we could, gladly happily, joyfully share it with others. In fact, if we could, we would give it all away. We would give it to our parents, our teachers, our friends, our family, our Dharma community, our municipal community. We would give it to the people we like and also to the people we don't really like. We would give it to the people we know and the millions upon millions of people we don't know. And in addition to the two-leggeds, we would share our blessings with the four-leggeds, the many-leggeds, the winged, the scaly, the slimy, the finny. All beings everywhere. May all beings find a path of peace. May all beings be free from suffering. And thank you all very much. And Shelly should be here next week. So take care, everybody. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.